Welcome back to another episode of Sharing Knowledge Series. I'm Kevin Vondro, Chief Planning Officer at West Hill Bank, and your host. Today we're circling back to the topic of cybersecurity, specifically how you can prepare your business legally and technologically against cyber threats in a rapidly evolving digital landscape. As businesses rely more and more on technology, it's becoming increasingly important to ensure your company is protected and secure. Keep watching this episode to find out more. of the Sharing Knowledge Series. I'm your host, Kevin Vondro, and today we're going to be talking about cybersecurity and really how businesses can prepare for it, on a, both on a, from a technology standpoint, but also a legal standpoint. We have two great guests with us joining us here today. First is David Howard, who's Director of Technical Services at V2 Technology. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at V2 Technology? Be glad to, yeah. V2 Technology is a great company to work with, and my role there is overseeing the technical services how they're delivered to our clients, kind of uh, positioning them, adjusting them, uh, and then changing them as time goes on as the market needs change or our client needs uh, change. So we have a team there that uh, ranges from the help desk level one to help desk level three, uh, and I oversee all of those and get to work with a lot of great clients here in Northeast Ohio. Well, good. Well, thank you for joining sure, us. Thank you. Our next guest is Brandon Pauley, who is a partner with Brennan, Mannon, and Diamond. And Brandon, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and, and what you do? I am the head of Brennan Mana Diamond's cybersecurity and data privacy group. Uh, I'm a partner with the firm. As part of our group, we help businesses uh, in Northeast Ohio and throughout the country deal with data privacy, which means how do they uh, hold and protect the data that they're entrusted with. And from a cybersecurity perspective, we help uh, companies comply with regulations, laws that are applicable to their industry, and then in the event that something happens, say uh, a security event like ransomware or some other unauthorized access, we help the clients respond, get their data secured, get their systems back up, and deal with the regulators post-incident. Okay, well good. Well, thank you for joining us. So as, as we talk about cybersecurity, let, let's talk about maybe some of the more common cases or, or, or incidents that, that happen to businesses. And David, we'll start with you. Sure, yeah. Yeah, we definitely see a lot of this, obviously, being in the IT space. And the ones that are most common we see are usually related something to users, something that they've done, uh, certainly because of a threat actor on the outside. Uh, the most common one we see is business email compromise, where a user in an organization uh, releases their credentials or allows access to their email box, uh, especially if they're in a position that has to do with financial transactions uh, within the business or outside the business, and they start doing things like wiring money to places they didn't intend to uh, because they were asked to do so by somebody who was compromised, um, things like that. That's the one that we see most commonly. We still see certainly ransomware uh, that occurs where a business basically is encrypted and loses access to their data for operational uh, use, and there's a lot of recovery work and, and things like that. Insider threat uh, continues to remain uh, an issue where one person gets access to systems uh, or data they should not have access to. And, and so we see all of those things. That's the most common things we continue to see. Okay. Brandon, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I would echo uh, especially David's sentiment on insider threat, which really means somebody within the four walls of your business or your network that causes a, a compromise or some sort of vulnerability. Um, from a legal standpoint, the way we try and combat that is 
to draft policies, procedures that really help educate and train your workforce and create almost like a holistic view of cybersecurity and data protection within your organization. So uh, with ever-changing uh, business environment, businesses that are trying to keep up with the times with uh, the digital transformation that's happening in the world, really making sure that your workforce understands what they need to be doing and ensuring that it's really a top-down philosophy uh, to protect your data and your systems. How do companies assess their current state and, and see how they are prepared for cyber attack? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, that's something businesses should be doing on a regular basis. Uh, the fact is, is that the technology they use is changing all the time. They're bringing in new systems, new people come in, things like that. There are new threats in the marketplace all the time uh, that they work within. So with that in mind, this continuous assessment isn't done just in a vacuum of like, well, what seems like a good idea? There are standards out there that organizations can look to and comply with and assess themselves against. Uh, the largest one is known as NIST. Uh, there's a couple of different standards on, under there, 800-53 and 800-171. And those standards document what are really best practices or good security hygiene practices in a business. And the way generally these assessments run then is, is kind of twofold. The first piece we usually do at least is we run network scans, automated scans of the entire environment. And that goes out and collects the information about what's in the environment at that point and what potential security holes might be there. So if a, if a server is unpatched and has not been brought up to the standards that the vendor is going to support, like a Microsoft Windows system, uh, they, uh, we want to make sure that those are patched to the level they should be. So the scan finds those types of items. The second piece, though, are the controls that the business, these are more the written policies, things like, well, is our server room door locked during business, you know, at any time? Um, uh, when we do onboarding and offboarding of employees, do we deactivate their accounts when they leave or just leave them open? Uh, so it also assesses against control. So one piece of it is an automated scan and reviewing that. And the second piece of it is really interviews and reviewing the, the practices of the organization. So we recommend really following that NIST scan. Great. And I would say from a, a legal perspective, assessing what you have to do really starts with taking a step back and understanding what industry you're in. Are you regulated? Are there federal regulations and laws that you need to comply with? Are there state level laws and regulations that you need to comply with? And then as we're seeing, uh, governments, state governments, the federal government pass increased uh, regulations and laws really dictating what companies have to do to protect their data depending on what industry they're in. That's where the legal side looks at the compliance perspective. What do you need to do to effectively check the boxes that you're doing the right things um, as required by law? And that legal side merges with the technical side from an implementation standpoint so that what you, you need to do, you now know because your lawyer told you you have to do this, and then they can work with your organization and then your technical consultant to come in and put, like David said, those controls in place that are really going to pass the test if something goes bad. Because at the end of the day, you can do every single uh, uh, technical protection, you can have the best legal policies, but something still may go wrong. So what you're really trying to do by implementing these policies and procedures from a legal and technical perspective is give yourself almost like a get out of jail free card. I tried to stop the bad actors mm -hmm. and we did 
reasonable things and took reasonable steps to protect the data that was entrusted to us and in our systems. Yeah. No, that's that's great information. And in what you're talking about, it seems very complicated. I know I know working at the bank, we're always having patch updates. They you always know, see them come over on your computer. And then we have uh, simulated phishing attacks and, and, and different things just to help make sure we're doing the following right for procedures and, and practices. But if you're a small business and say you have limited resources or, or limited staff, you like what's how do they go about following those those best practices or even knowing what to look at? Because you mentioned Brandon, you're talking about protecting information. And a lot of times I think, okay, you work at a bank, there's a lot of information to protect. Mm -hmm. um, but you think about a normal business, they have a lot of information. And I think a lot of times business owners don't realize that there's a lot of vital information that needs protected. And, and how do they go about getting those resources to, to do that? Yeah. So uh, one of the unfair things, sometimes life's unfair, it, you see in the news, you have these massive attacks on massive companies in the U.S., and the reaction by regulators and representatives that, that make the laws are really reaction to those mega events that are in the billions of dollars. And so what ends up happening, let's say from a healthcare framework, uh, the HIPAA security compliance program, there are requirements in there that if you're a huge hospital that you have your own uh, IT staff and cybersecurity department, on your payroll, well, you can do those things. Where it gets complicated and, and you really have to take some time to think about your strategy and approach is if you're a smaller business trying to uh, comply with the laws and regulations that are out there um, while still having a good business sense about it. And so I think you know, our, at least at BMD, our approach is understanding the goals that you're trying to achieve and looking at it as a business case because the easy answer is go in and do everything. Yeah. But yeah. not everybody yeah. has the budget to do that. So understanding what the the real core vulnerabilities are, um, a lot of it is making sure you have the right people in the right seats. Uh, if you need to farm out services, sometimes that's cheaper than bringing on your own staff to do these uh, issues. What I'm seeing there are network administrators that are in organizations that have been promoted just organically, but their expertise is connecting printers to networks, not patching and doing cybersecurity consultation for an organization. So that's really understanding uh, who you need to get the job done, and then understanding what the parameters and the, the uh, business justification for those steps are and, and doing a risk analysis to figure out what works for you and your organization specifically. Uh -huh. That's good. David, anything you'd like to add on what businesses can do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a great question, by the way, because the fact is if you look at the standards I mentioned earlier or you look at HIPAA or things like that, it could get out of control and you could be writing checks you know, all day long to, to various companies. Uh, V2 is a is CMMC, I mentioned that before, uh, cybersecurity, maturity models, uh, certification, a registered provider. So our role is really to come in and help a company get ready for in terms of the mitigation and correcting things so that the company can in fact become certified and do DOD work, things like that. 
Now, if you have to do everything incredibly to the letter of that in a small business, you have to think about what the sizing of that is for a small business, what that actually means. Um, and so we go through and try to make it reasonable for them without actually cutting the corners and still meeting the needs of what these standards are. And it is oftentimes uh, a discussion with the business leaders, the CFO, uh, people like that, that may not understand the technology implications, but they certainly understand the business implications. And so I think what it is, though, it, you can come to a conclusion or place where you can have reasonable security that doesn't keep people from working. The fact of the matter is when we discussed insider threat before or we discussed uh, uh, phishing uh, and things like that, that means that people had access to those resources, the email box, the file system, the ERP system, whatever it was. They had access to those things, and they have to have access to do their work. And if you limit everything possible for them to do, they can't do their work. So we have to come to some reasonable conclusions as we go through the process and, and go through what are known as mitigating controls that basically say, well, we're going to be able to do this in order to protect the business from that. And that's a process we go through, and it, and it does work well, but it takes some time and sometimes some give and take with, with various organizations and people in the organization. Yeah. Maybe talk about how your two roles can work together for small businesses, right, on the on legal side and on a, a technology side. Yeah, I'll take that first and say that you actually should call him first. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, and that's step. a good point because I would have yeah. thought it was the other way around. So maybe elaborate um, on that. You know what's funny? So a company like us might might be aware of it early on because we may be providing certain services to them or they just think, well, it's a, it's a, it starts off as being what looks like a technology performance issue. Hey, the system is slow or I can't get access to certain files all of a sudden. Or I have some strange, something happened with my email today. I'm not sure what happened with it. And it might start off with that, but honestly, as soon as you've determined the fact that there is some sort of a, a, a compromise in your systems, that there is a threat actor that has gained access and you've had a breach at that point, we always tell people, call the attorney right then. Uh, and you could talk about why that is, but there's some great reasons why that is. Yes, so uh, as I mentioned before, one of the ways that you can control costs, especially if you're a smaller, mid-sized organization, and you know, investment into IT oftentimes isn't a revenue driver. And, and so there's a tension in the organization as to where to spend your money. Mm -hmm. By getting legal in and helping direct that conversation on what to do and, and what is required, then you can corral some of the technical expense. So, so I do think, especially as laws and regulations are becoming more commonplace, there's more on deck, not only at a state level, but a federal level as far as uh, data privacy laws and, and requirements for your cybersecurity posture, bringing legal in and making sure that they have a dialogue with technical, whether that technical's in-house in your organization or a vendor that comes in and, and provides those services, I think it's important to control the conversation. What is actually needed? How do you implement it? And what are those costs looking like? Um, so I think it's, it's really, especially in the market that we're talking about and really the market that we serve, um, controlling that discussion on what is needed to make sure that they're not you know, over provided or they're not getting provided the right things and, and not spending their money in a smart way is in really imperative for small and mid-sized businesses. No, that, that's a good point. I think when it, when it comes down to it, one of the things that, and we tell our customers this, is, is education, right? Because mm -hmm. it's training your employees on, on what to do and, and how to do. And I think, David, you were talking about um, really as, as businesses maybe leverage technology and allow people to work right. remotely and, right. and, and, and you like 
not in the office all the time. How do businesses go about doing that, making sure they, they are protecting their their data, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's definitely a, a thing to think about today, and it's changed a lot in the last few years. Um, so one of the things, particularly, is policies, reviewing policies, including employment policies, employment agreements, of what they're allowed to do, uh, your, your technology use policy, what they're allowed to do, what they're allowed to connect with, things like that. It's thinking about actually the inventory and the tools that you're going to give to the people. Are you going to tell them, hey, go home and use your, your kid's computer, you know, in order to access our corporate systems? You really don't want to do that. Uh, so you start thinking about things like, well, we need to provide them with tools they take home, which might be things like additional monitors, uh, things like that. What is their network connectivity like at their house? Um, how do they get into our, our organization? What sort of a VPN or remote access tools do we provide for them uh, in all of this? So there's a lot of things to think about all that. And honestly, it's created a lot more work for the technology side of the house because we used to support one network or two or three, however many business sites you may have. Now you're supporting 100 in some respects because there's 100 employees out there you know, working uh, in, the, in, the, in the world. Um, so it's, it's created a lot more um, thinking about things. Uh, but I actually think as far as what a, uh, a culture in the United States in particular, I think we've done quite well with it. We haven't seen clients that have a lot of issues as a result, uh, more performance issues, honestly, than, than the, the security issues. But there's been some where you say, hey, a second, that, you're creating an insecure connection uh, into our environment. So we've got to cut you off and change the way you're working at that point. So it's something we definitely keep an eye on. So. I, I guess one of the realities uh, of, of culture today, at least in the US, is I think people are conditioned to live with these uh, increased security measures. So it, almost everybody I know has an iPhone. So to get into your iPhone, you scan your face. That's biometric uh, uh, connection to your iPhone. And so a lot of these words that we're using and, and concepts that we're talking about, they sound complex and they sound scary, but they're really ingrained now as a part of everyday life and not just for Gen Z, but for you know, every generation that connects to a computer. So as far as viewing the workforce, I think um, a learning curve is much less today than it was even three to five years ago as far as instilling multi-factor authentication in your workforce. So it's, it's not everybody doesn't have to carry around a keychain that has an automatic revolving number mm -hmm. that you have to put in to get into your systems. Now you log into your computer and it sends you a text with a code and you put in a four or five number code to get into your computer. Those things are multi-factor authentication. Mm -hmm. Those are uh, required by these increased regulations that you, know, you as, as a banker live with, um, but they've just become sort of part of everyday life. So I think viewing the, the workforce education as a barrier to having good cyber hygiene, that's really been dispelled, especially in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of that too is user training. Uh, we do, a, you mentioned before about phishing, you know, uh, tests that you receive from time to time. Uh, so we do a lot of, of user security training, whether it be video training, in-person training, uh, phishing uh, assessments uh, with them, things like that, giving them the results of that, uh, and then kind of beefing up their response to that in case they clicked. We call those clickers. Um, and, and that has helped a lot, just raising the awareness, honestly, because we talked before about, you know, phishing being a problem, business email compromise, insider threat that Brandon talked about. Um, the fact of the matter is, is if we can raise the awareness and the capability of identifying 
something that's not right when a user is working, that actually helps a lot. Because now we're not waiting for the after effect. Uh, we're actually now responding to, they actually saw it right then. Now we can respond to it. Yeah. And I think with, with, with technology, technology is a wonderful thing and it, it allows you to do more, right? Uh, the challenge with that is, is you become more busy and, you're, and you, things become more routine. And I think a lot of times that's what happens is, is they're looking, people are going through their, their daily their daily tasks or routines and they're automatically clicking and approving things and, and going through it and, and not looking at the details. Because a lot of times, uh, you know, like when, when you go back and look at that phishing attempt or that maybe that, that email and you look closely at it, there's, there's grammar errors, there's, there's all kinds of issues in it. And, and it's really a numbers game, I think, when, when they're going out. Yeah, and so we've talked a lot about training, and that just doesn't happen overnight. You don't snap your fingers or send out one email and your workforce is magically trained. Mm -hmm. uh, from an organization, whether you're a small business or a large multinational enterprise, you have to plan and strategize how to implement what we're talking about in your organization. So um, part of it, comes to understanding your workforce. Uh, what is going, it, how do you craft a message to ensure that your workforce actually absorbs the information that you're giving them? Uh, if you go to a manufacturing floor that uses automation and you say, watch out for fishing, some of those folks may have never, they so think you're going on a boat that's right. and, and not yeah, worrying that's right. about yeah. what you're clicking on an either. Yeah. So really getting a strategy and understanding who you're trying to train what your workforce looks like. And, and part of that, you know, not to sound you know, salesy about a lawyer's role in this, but a lot of it comes down to working with uh, your HR team, your legal team, your technical team um, to understand what the best way to implement this is. And then again, doing it once right behind planning and, and strategy, um, not only will save you time and money, but then we'll also better train your workforce and do it the right way the first time. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna date myself, but I remember back in the day when, when businesses, they, they'd be taking home a, a tape of yeah, back, sure. backup systems, right? Uh -huh. In case, or that was disaster recovery if there was a fire <laughs> or something else happened and, and they don't, they don't wanna lose, lose yeah. data. Yeah. I, I mean, how do businesses go about doing that in, in today's environment, especially when you're using the cloud, right? Everyone, everyone's using yeah. cloud application. Great uh, thought process on that. And, and now I would view anybody taking a, a tape or a USB or something like that as a real issue. Yeah. Because now that gets stolen out yeah. of the back of your car while you're at the gas station, and now your data's out there, and that's, that, you, know, you don't wanna be in the headlines for that. Um, so yeah, you have to start thinking about your, your, your backups in terms of, of multiple methods, multiple destinations. So you should, have, you should have backups on site, perhaps in a different location in the building or a different one of your facilities. You should, I, I would encourage you to put backups in the cloud also for long-term storage. Uh, you won't be able to recover as quickly. So you think about the recovery times also of these things. Uh, otherwise you could be down for weeks for all you know. And, uh, and so you, uh, so you wanna go there. You also wanna make sure that your backups cannot be compromised by the attacker. So if they get into your production systems, you wanna make sure that you have basically a, a wall between that and those backups. Because if somebody's gonna really wanna attack your business, they may come in and encrypt your systems and now you don't have any access to those. What you don't want them to do is also encrypt your backups because now you can't, you can't get back. You really will not be able to get back and you're gonna pay. And some of these ransoms are really quite high when that happens. So really you have to think about that. It's a great question. You have to think about that on the backups to make sure that they cannot be compromised as well. Yeah, and what David said about segregating backups, mm -hmm. um, one of the, the issues that I've run into with companies 
it's almost if you're traveling, you have a passport, you also make a copy of your passport. If you put that copy of your passport in your passport and it's stolen, you're in the same yes, spot. Exactly. And yeah. so having some sort of uh, segregated uh, backup system is important because you don't want the original compromise to compromise yeah. the original and the backup system. Um, mentioning the cloud, that's I've heard from clients, oh, we have a cloud service. We're good. Um, there's a lot of different iterations of, of cloud-based services and storage. You have to make sure you consider which one is right for you. So if you're in a regulated industry, healthcare, uh, financial services, education services, um, not every cloud is going to work for you. There, you have to see if they de-identify information, if it's encrypted. Uh, where is it actually stored? Is it offshore? Is it within the, the United States? Those are all questions you need to ask of a, a cloud service provider. And then taking it back to you know, the original thoughts, understand what laws apply to you so that you can pick the right one that actually makes sure you're legally compliant. Because if something does happen and there's a regulatory investigation, it can open a can of worms if some of the original steps that you thought were doing the right thing and good cyber hygiene end up putting you in more hot water because they run afoul of what the the laws and regulations that apply to your business are. Mm -hmm. Look, the point you make, though, is actually very key in terms of uh, what region you might put data in. We also would say that if you're running systems in the cloud, let's, and so many companies now removed on-premise you know, systems, which is a great idea. There's, there's good reasons to do that. Uh, but now you got to start thinking about things like, well, where, where am I going to store my production systems in Microsoft's Azure Cloud or Amazon's AWS Cloud and run those from? And so you start thinking about things like, well, I want to run in the eastern region for my production, but I want my backups to be in a completely different place so that we, we, we even uh, remove from the disaster type issues or the other types of security issues that ha could happen. But the other thing to start thinking about is then is when you put your data in a certain place, you may come under certain legal requirements just because you put it there. If you put it in Europe, you come under certain legal requirements and things like that. So all these things have to be thought about, once again, pretty early on in the process of, of planning and deploying IT systems and the overall policies that control them. That's a good point. So the inevitable happens, you're compromised, your system's locked down, you, you, you got ransomware, and, and you, you, you can't do anything. What advice would you have for this? Because we've seen that happen to our, some of our sure. customers. Sure, what, what advice? So that initially, um, a, get your legal team there to start putting a, a shield of privilege over the communications because you don't know Absolutely. what the, the uh, incident emanated from. Uh, you want to make sure that communications between team members um, would fall under the cloak of privilege because you're really trying to gather information. You want to have transparent communications. Uh, from, you know, David will be able to talk more about this from a technical perspective. But from a legal perspective, you want to preserve what you can preserve. So just coming in and starting to tear uh, uh, plugs out of the walls and, and shut off equipment is not the right thing to do, even though instinctively you think, okay, somebody's in from the outside, let's cut off their access instantly. Uh, when it comes to, to litigation, when it comes to regulatory investigations, information is key and knowledge is key. And, and part of that is having the ability to go in and figure out what happens. So preservation of the systems, even if it is ransomware, mm -hmm. sometimes you're able to track through the systems how that threat actor moved within their system. What 
folders they opened up on a computer. Um, and preserving those, they're called logs, mm -hmm. is really critical in uh, understanding and mitigating what your risks are. And just unplugging things takes away the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I completely agree with what Brandon has said there. Um, there, there are certain points you get to. First of all, don't don't panic, don't don't freak out. You know, it's it's a situation you're in without a doubt. Uh, I mentioned before that after you've done this preparation stage, the next thing that happens is going to be detection. So once again, a user says my system is slow or I can't open a file. It says it's corrupted. It's actually encrypted, perhaps. Um, uh, that might be the first event that you might see there. Now you start looking at it, you're saying, you start looking at logs. You start looking at the, the uh, kind of the scope of how many, how many things are affected. Was this one file is corrupted or is this all the files are corrupted at that point? So you, want to, you want, kind of want to take a step back. Don't panic about it and follow the process in the incident response plan. Get the people together. As Brandon mentioned, you want to, especially legal, really. That He, he mentioned the umbrella of, of protection, really, there uh, for, for discovery and things like that. Very important in all of this uh, because you want to keep control over how you're communicating. Otherwise, it will become a bit of a, you know, craziness. Uh, so, so with that in mind, then, one of the things that, that will occur is you'll have to make decisions along the way that say things like, we are going to cut off access at this point. And that's going to require you to know what the logs are. Um, there are tools out there. Every system is logging everything. You know, every firewall transaction that you, you say, I need to connect to this, is always being recorded. Uh, when you log into a server, it's always being recorded. Uh, when events happen, you print something, it's being recorded. All that's being recorded. It can actually be a massive amount of information to go through. And there are tools out there, and they're getting better. In fact, we, we were talking previously before we started about uh, artificial intelligence and its use here. And its ability, and, and, and right now it's a lot of humans looking at things too much often. Uh, and, and so what we want to do is be able to have tools that can go through and kind of correlate this various information to understand what's happened. Then at that point, you can start making decisions about, hey, the person is still has access, active access. Well, we need to cut that off. Um, by the way, if you get law enforcement involved, which maybe you should perhaps, they may say, we need you to keep that open because we need to collect more information. So there becomes a bit of a, once again, back and forth. Uh, and then uh, and you, you make other decisions, things like, well, now we're going we're gonna to restore from backups because we can't, we can't get back what we have, things like that. So don't panic. Follow the plan. Keep the communication lines open. Be diligent about it without a doubt. You can't, you know, you, you see these all-nighters when these types of things happen, and that's probably a good response. But just, just follow the plan and, you know, keep in good communication. Yeah. No, the only thing I would add to it is, again, preparation is key. The only way you don't panic is if you're prepared for the incident and, and prepared for the aftermath. So in, in these scenarios, especially if you are an industry that has data or information that somebody else wants, uh, you're likely a target. And that's everything from manufacturing sure. with intellectual property, uh, healthcare with uh, healthcare data and personal data, financial services, banking with financial data, um, you're a target. And no matter the level of security, the, the crispness of the policies, how much you've trained your, your individual, sometimes incidents still happen. And how you recover and manage those incidents, it, it's not what happens in the five minutes after you find out what the incident is, it happens in the months and years before that incident. Uh, to ensure that your organization and your people are prepared. Uh, that, that, that's a good point, uh, the po having the right policies and procedures in place. And, and maybe talk about the importance of that 
in order to qualify for cyber insurance because I, I know in the past, and this was maybe when it first was, was coming out, it wasn't as stringent. You didn't have the process to go through it and, and, and get it and apply for it. Now you have to do a lot of this work. You have to have all that in, in place, otherwise you, you won't qualify for it. Yeah, that's especially in the last few years um, when companies are re-upping their policies and looking for either adding a cyber, a, a specific cyber insurance policy or increasing their limits, you are now getting questionnaires and underwriting due diligence uh, that you need to fill out to be able to qualify. And uh, sometimes it, it's asking for more information, more protections than you're legally required to do. Um, most often it's self-attestation. So you, the, the customer, you're signing on the dotted line, you know, uh, that it effectively an affidavit saying everything you have checked and, and uh, put in the form is true and accurate. And what they're doing, they're bringing in legal, they're bringing in their technical uh, consultants to ensure that what they're putting in these forms and these applications are accurate. So that process, it's, it's involved. Uh, you're involving legal, technical, your insurance broker um, to really, A, make sure you're checking the right boxes, doing the right things, and then getting the the best quote that you can for your policy. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's something that has changed a lot over the last few years because the threats have increased uh, and the amount of dollars that can be lost or impact on business, uh, you know, and their reputation, honestly, uh, has, has uh, seen a, a larger amount of things that insurers are looking for because they're the ones that are gonna end up at the end of the day taking some impact because of this incident that's occurred. And uh, so the form used to be one page, very simple, ask a couple questions, and now it's becoming, you know, page two and page three and so on and so forth. And, and Brandon's right about getting other people involved. Uh, I know one company that they have basically their admin assistant fill out the form for them. I don't know, it was a five or six page form. And they said everything was yes, 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 we do that, we do that. They sent it over and they said, is this okay to send? I said, no, it's not okay at all. <laughs> um, this is not an accurate representation of your business. And the fact is, is as you go through those forms and you fill them out and you get the insights of the other people on your team, uh, you will come to certain inflection points where you may say, they're asking us to do this. Should we do it? You know, is this, is this a best practice? Should we actually implement this? We don't do it now. We should go ahead and do that. Or the inflection might be the other way where you say, that's going to be prohibitive to our business for various reasons. Uh, and at that point, then you just basically say, we're not going to check that box. We're still going to submit the form and we'll, we'll, we'll see where it falls in terms of getting coverage or the cost of that coverage. But, but the form's uh, an important point to think about. And I, I actually find it helpful for businesses to go through that process because they have that one more part of their team, their insurer, that's helping them stay safe. And that's ultimately what the goal is. And the, the form and application is one part of it. Uh, that doesn't mean an event's going to be covered. So just because you checked yes, uh, maybe or maybe not, your organization's doing that. But you better realize that if there is an incident, that insurance team and, and their underwriters, they're going to be out there ensuring that you did, mm -hmm. let's say, have multi-factor authentication or uh, a current active antivirus and firewall. They're going to check those things. And if you had them during your application, it probably makes it in the policy that you have to have those current and running. And if they weren't at the time of the incident, it's not going to be a covered event. So we're seeing cybersecurity policies, um, not only at the application phase, but then also what's written into the policy and conditions of coverage 
really expanding and becoming more onerous on the companies. Yeah. Uh, just to say one more thing about that, the, you're right about that. You have to keep those things running. It's not a point in time where, yeah, we're doing this today, but we'll just turn it off tomorrow. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, once again, the, the threats are changing all the time. Your technology base, your user base, your po people start stop doing the policy because they're new, um, things like that. That's changing all the time. So you, this is where, the, once again, the, the incident response plan and double-checking that you know, on a regular basis, reviewing that, doing the tabletop exercises that Brandon mentioned. Uh, as well as uh, simply running the assessments, you know, going back through the process again and saying, hey, we used to patch that machine, but look, it's out of date now and the, the vendor no longer provides anything. So now we've got to replace that. So keeping an eye on these things all the time and working with, once again, the insurance attestation process and, and the legal process and all of this is very, very important. So one thing we always do um, is we always ask our guests, what's on your watch list? So something that you think would be relevant or something that our, our viewers would, would, would seem important. So we'll start with, with you, Brandon. What, what would be on your watch list? And, and not necessarily have to be IT or cybersecurity related, but it, but it can be. So on, on my watch list, um, CISA, C-I-S-A, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Administration, they often have alerts, and those alerts will be industry-specific. They have Twitter feeds, they have uh, online presence that, you know, they just list if, you know, hospitals may be at risk based on some threat actor overseas targeting hospitals. So um, industry specific, I look at CISA, that comes from the government and, and provides relevant uh, uh, notifications and, and warnings um, on what to be wary for. As far as, uh, it, it's funny, relating to cybersecurity and data protection, I, 60 Minutes last week just had uh, a whole segment on AI. Mm -hmm. and commercials, if you're watching you know, a sports game, um, it comes on for uh, uh, LifeLock and making sure, you know, data security and things like, it's just becoming more prevalent. Everywhere you look seems to have something associated with data protection and cybersecurity. Um, so again, if you're in business, look at your industry periodicals because I almost guarantee there is going to be something related to technology and cybersecurity mm -hmm. that is relevant to your industry and organization. Mm -hmm. One would be uh, just, gen well, they're both general. One could be related to security for sure. Um, the uh, is artificial intelligence, the AI that Brandon mentioned. Um, and uh, that can be used by both, let's call it sides here. Um, the company that's trying to protect themselves, we talked before about all the logs that are collected, all the information about, about information flow and, and who's opening it, who's seeing it, things like that. All those logs can be completely overwhelming if a human needs to look at them. But if a system can look at them and correlate pieces of information and suggest to you, you have something going on that you should be alerted to. That's where I think that this is going to change a lot over the next few years. There are systems that do that by rule-based, that people manage rules. But I do think that, that AI or machine learning is going to be super helpful to bring us to a new standard, really, uh, in that area. Uh, honestly, the fact is, is that um, uh, uh, threat actors, uh, malicious agents can also use those same AI-type uh, technologies. You mentioned before emails that always have, you know, always look at the email and it's got some sort of a grammar thing or, or you know. hover over it, right? Always hover over. That's the best tip anybody can know is hover over a link and, and it's not from Microsoft, it's from some other thing, you know, type, type thing. So absolutely that. But, uh, but even in terms of AI for, for somebody that is malicious, 
um, they can use it now to write better emails, honestly, to generate a better email for themselves. They can use it to write most of a script that they would use to run against a system to, to uh, uh, compromise it based on certain vulnerabilities it has, things like that. So definitely AI is something to watch. The other one for me, honestly, is the new Apple Vision Pro uh, headset. I'm kind of geeking out about that. I'm a, I, I love technology. I've always loved technology. And um, uh, so you go through this uh, kind of, uh, you know, trend from, uh, you know, personal, well, mainframes or whatever they were back in the day, uh, and uh, then personal computers, and then there was more mobile-type devices, and then we had network, client, server, and then all of a sudden internet-type applications, and then more mobile with phones and tablets and things like that. I kind of think this is the next generation. I'm pretty excited about that just to see the the work interface of it, what it means for the ability to interact with information and, and, and other people at the same time. So that should be cool. I want to thank you both for joining me here today and, and, and taking the time just to talk about cybersecurity and, and some of the best practices that, that businesses should be following out there. Thank you. Thanks for having Cool. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Sharing Knowledge is brought to you by Westfield Bank, hosted by Kevin Vondro, Chief Lending Officer. From the imagination and creativity of Chris Van Osdale, Erica Bailey, Suzanne Favre, Corinne Wilson, Kartika Caffey, the marketing and communications strategist at Westfield Bank. Produced, edited, and mixed by Shark and Minnow. Learn more at westfield-bank.com forward slash SKS. Sharing knowledge and shedding light on the financial industry to empower financial freedom. The Sharing Knowledge series of videos, podcast episodes, and articles are for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as legal, tax, financial investment, accounting, or regulatory advice. Opinions expressed and third-party information shared herein do not reflect the opinions of Westfield Bank, Westfield Group, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. The information shared does not constitute nor is intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any product or service. Testimonials may not be representative of the experience of other customers and are not guarantees of future performance or success. Bank products and services provided by Westfield Bank, member FDIC, an equal opportunity lender.